0: Welcome to Saving the Game. This is Episode 30, Long Campaigns, recorded Thursday, November 14th of 2013, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, Brandon, and Ben. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Brandon. And I'm
1: special guest Ben Rome. Ben, welcome back. Glad to be back, guys. Thank you. Thank you for putting up with the technical difficulties, Ben. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I know. Not a problem. So, Ben, uh, Ben Rome is back. He was a uh, special guest on our Faith and Fantasy episode? No, Faith in no, science, Faith fiction. And science
1: Fiction. Faith <laughs> Fiction. That's right. Faith in Fantasy was uh, Dan Repperger. That's right. right. Well, Ben... Who are you and why are you
2: special? Who am I? Uh, well, I'm just some kind of guy who likes to write. <laughs> um, no, actually, I am a writer by trade. Uh, I am also the, uh, currently the assistant line developer for Catalyst Game Labs, Battletech Universe. Um, I have credits in several different games, and I've actually published a book over the summer on games and game culture with Fear the Boots' Chris Hussey, and I'm currently working on a standalone uh, science fiction trilogy now. Very cool. I'm just a regular guy. I loves to play games.
1: You do a National Novel Writers Month with that Ben, or are you doing it in a much more
2: Uh, traditional manner? I purposely do not do Nano (laughs) Write Okay. I I, I don't like the concept. Uh, It's a big thing, so no, I'm not participating in that. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough.
1: (laughs) I just thought since it was November and you were writing a novel, I'd ask.
2: Yeah, considering everything else that's on my plate as a freelancer, uh, no. That makes sense. Yeah, and makes the book sense. that you've got out with Chris Hussey
0: is Games Most Wanted. Tell me a little bit about that, real quick.
2: Sure. It's um, it's about uh, games, board games, tabletop games, war games, video games. Basically, from we're looking at games from ancient times all the way through today. Chris and I kind of break down into about thirty-seven chapters. Various idiosyncrasies, culture, history, tidbits, facts, that kind of stuff. We wrote the book for gamers. For gamers spouses or significant others for gamers parents for gamers children basically just introducing people in a very soft shoe simple way what games are who these gamers are and uh, it's part of our culture so
0: it's on my uh, my Christmas wish list last time we talked it was a couple months away from publication yeah. so
2: so it's out it's out uh, in've Bar- seen it in Barnes and Noble seen it in uh, books in Myan. It's on Amazon and Barnes Noble's websites, and it's also available as Kindle and Nook. So go out, buy it, review it, enjoy it, have fun. (laughs) I'm certainly hoping to pick it up. (laughs) Same here.
0: All right, so before we get started, I got uh, one bit of news about the fundraiser. Well, kind of two. Uh, First, in the 2013 RPG Podcasters Charity Drive, we are actually on the board now, which is nice. Excellent. Steve from Postcards from the Dungeon was on with us last episode, and... Postcards is currently in the lead, but we're hoping to catch up with them. Last time I'd mentioned that Drive-Thru RPG, Silver Griffin Games, and Evil Hat Productions had put up prizes for the podcast that raised the most for their chosen charity. Since then, Margaret Weiss Productions has offered PDF copies of a Firefly RPG product and a Cortex Plus product. Uh, the Firefly RPG product is Echoes of War, and it's the Cortex Plus Hackers Guide. And they're putting on the Play Day guest appearance by Monica Valentinelli, who's the brand manager and lead writer for Margaret Weiss Productions' Firefly RPG. So that's really cool. And Atlas Games has put up a full set of decks and expansions for Gloom, which is a personal favorite of mine, to go to the podcast which raises the most money. They're fine with using that as a, a giveaway on the podcast, something like that. You know, for example, if we decided, Hey, let's try and get some iTunes reviews out there. And we gave the package away as a prize to a randomly chosen person who reviewed us on iTunes. That'd work fine. And what's cool about that is that this is a full set of decks, all the expansions and a copy of the 10 card promo pack they made for the tabletop web series. So it's got a Will Wheaton and a Felicia Day card in it. That's pretty sweet. Wow. Yeah, these are pretty rare. The 10-card promo pack is going for more than $25 on eBay, so it's a neat little thing. Uh, it's actually worth a fair bit, so that's a really cool thing to go to the podcast that you want. Uh, obviously, we'd love it if you don- donated to our chosen cause, which is the Bodana Group, who does amazing work, but Ultimately, if there's a cause that's closer to your heart, donate to them. The point is to get money to charity and a good cause, so. All right, I got nothing else. You guys have any
1: news? I don't. Brandon? Not really.
0: Okay. Ben?
2: News? No. (laughs) (laughs) Catch me off guard there. (laughs) We got off.
3: Other than the fact that I don't know exactly how much I'm going to say about the topic we're covering today, because...
1: Brandon is a big fan of one-shots, apparently.
3: No, well, well, all right. We're covering a topic that I don't think I've ever done outside of, like, personal role play, like, stories back and forth with people.
1: Well, I haven't either, but that's one of the reasons why we've got Ben here, because this is intriguing (laughs) to me. Fair enough. All right, so before we get into the
0: topic, which is long campaigns, let's get our scripture done. Ben, do you have any
2: particular piece of scripture you want to read for us tonight? Oh, I get to pick? Sure. Oh, yeah, sure. you're the okay. guest. Why not? All right. One that I was crossing my mind today was uh, from Galatians uh, chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. This is Paul writing to the audience at Galatia. He says, My dear friends, what I would really like you to do is to try to put yourselves in my shoes to the same extent that I, when I was with you, put myself in yours. You were very sensitive and kind then. You didn't come down on me personally. You were well aware that the reason I ended up preaching to you was that I was physically broken, and so prevented from continuing my journey, I was forced to stop with you. That's how I came to preach to you. And if it's all right with you
0: guys, I'll take Psalm 90. This is Psalm 90, verses 12 to 15. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil.
1: And then, Brandon, you want to do some kind of internet rock, paper, scissors for the last one? You take it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is Genesis 45:24. Then he sent his brothers off. As they left, he told them, take it easy on the journey, try to get
2: along with each other. So I think it's a tying theme for all three of these is that the journey, the length of journey, the length of days. Yep. Like we said, the topic is long campaigns tonight,
0: and this is a topic that Ben wanted to talk about specifically. So Ben, do you want to start
2: us off? Well, it spurred off from um, when we were talking in the last episode that I was on, um, I shared with you one of the more intriguing gaming events of my life. Back when I was in college, I... The Star Wars RPG had just come out a couple of years prior, and I had it in my room. Some of the guys from my floor came in, were just, you know, were chatting. One of the guys saw it, pulled it out. It was like a big Star Wars fan, wanted to know more about it. Uh, I had just started playing it with my brother um, and a couple of his friends, and, you know, showed them how easy the, the rules were, how easy the, the game actually ran.
3: I forget, was this West End or D20?
2: Oh, it was West End. I was wondering that, too. Yes. Yeah, it, all I, right. I, I, I'm, I'm older <laughs> than I sound. It's
3: okay. It's all right. No, 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 no. like, my first role-playing game I ever did, I think I've mentioned on here, was
2: West End Star Wars, because yes. D&D was evil, and Star <laughs> Wars wasn't. So the, the West End games was uh, my introduction to my college mates, and they never played role-playing before, so we introduced it to them. Started with uh, Tattooing Manhunt, which was one of the, modules that you could pick up at the time and they loved it and so we started and what ended up uh, as one night of fun ended up a four year campaign with uh, the day after finals we played the battle of Endor and we all went our separate ways. We ended up having I think between 25 and 30 players total,
0: which blows my mind even more than the four-year campaigns. So. <laughs> yeah, we,
1: <clears throat> we we could have made this either long games or huge games. Yeah, well,
2: the long games actually makes more sense just because of how this campaign actually worked for me, and I've used what I used from that experience. I've used in other long campaigns with players mm-hmm. that I've, I've had over the years in my gaming groups. If you're wondering at the logistics of that many people. I think we had that many on the last night. All told, we would actually play three to four nights a week, and I would play with anywhere from one person to six people. And what ended up happening was all of their tales, all of their games, merged into and wove into a very long, complex, but ultimately very fun story arc that ended concurrently with the Battle of Endor. I learned a lot about how to build them, prepare for them, the tricks of running them, a lot of hit-and-miss stuff for all of that, but um, that's where that came from. So, they, obviously, if we did large campaigns, I think we'd only be here for about 10 minutes because large campaigns are just really, really hard to do. <laughs> yeah, gotcha.
1: I was being a little facetious that's anyways. Okay. But <laughs> Yep. So, here's what I
0: gotta ask you. What's the big draw for you for a long campaign like that over say, a, a one-shot or a, a small mini-campaign?
2: Telling a story. I... Fancy myself a storyteller. Whether people not agree, that's that's their opinion. Um, well, considering your no, vocation, no, ben, I think no, there's ben. a few
1: people that would agree.
3: <laughs> no, Ben, I'm sorry. I'm the only storyteller allowed on here. Like, yeah. I don't, <laughs> well, no, I don't no. think you know this. No,
1: no, he's a guest host. He's a guest host. It's okay. It's it's just okay. Say, I Come guess on. this episode's You're over me. then.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shutting it oh. down.
1: <laughs> no, um, wait, wait, the, the real Hang on. To Brandon me- and I are going to step into the alley for a moment. <laughs>
2: Um, The real appeal to me for long campaigns is the same reason that the type of television shows I watch, even the books that I actually read, I want a comprehensive story with multiple levels of arcs, multiple characters, lots of different meat to them so that I can follow along and root for characters for their demise or for their success I want to be there with them. I want to walk through them through all the what they went through and, and at the end, put it down and go, man, that was awesome. And that's the type of feeling that I want when I read a story. So short stories for me, which is about what a module would be, they work, but they work only in spurts when you really have a hankering to get something done and out of your system and then you want to get back to something else. And there's a lot of games that I've played that, that are very suited to the long campaign. And then there are others that are, that are not. I'll give you an example, Car Wars. Trying to do a long campaign with Car Wars is impossible. You can't do it because the entire game is built about racing cars around shooting other people. So, I mean, there's really not much more to it than that unless you really wanted to dive into making up a lot of your own stuff, which takes a lot of time, and I know some people do do that. But with the ready-made resources that are available, it's just not possible. Yeah, Steve Jackson Games put out one book for
1: the auto Duel setting. Right. Which, you know, if you're... If you're a typical, like, GURPS GM and you like to make most of the stuff yourself, mm-hmm. that's great. And there's definitely some material in there. Actually, I suppose they did those AADA road atlases too, but none of it's adventures. Right. You know, it's all just it's all like, this set. is what's in Texas, mm-hmm. you know?
2: And, and you know, uh, FASA did that with Crimson Skies. Um, Crimson Skies, they had a lot of different supplements for it. But if you look at them, there's stories and things like that in there, and it's but it's to give you the flavor for the setting. There's no real RPG build a character or build a pilot it's all about the planes it's all about the the air combat it's all about the setting in itself and there's really nothing to support beyond
3: that. i don't know like when you say oh well you know you couldn't run a long game of car wars like part of me goes well yes i could like i don't know it's just <laughs> something weird about me because that's exactly the sort of tricks i would use is i would yeah. i would not make it about like this individual car, I would make it about the drivers and. Well, okay, so yes,
1: but Brandon, your personal motto is challenge accepted.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So, I'll clarify. Also, I'll clarify it this way: most people wouldn't do it, and I'm, I'm looking at long campaigns and the games that support them from the aspect of is there supporting material that you can use to help you with this? Because as we go into the the topic tonight, you'll see that long campaigns are very GM driven, and the less work that you have to do the more satisfied you'll be and the more happier players will be because you're running the game rather than setting it up. So, like, I mean, I could run a long campaign for Car Wars if I really wanted to, but what that would entail is me sitting down, coming up, one, with an RPG system uh, to build a character and coming up with basic rules about how that character works, taking the, setting, the sparse setting material that's there and trying to develop a larger setting that's fleshed out enough that I can put in stories and themes and characters and factions and and the micro all that micro stuff that goes into that so that you can build stories off of. So, you know, it is possible to do, but it takes a lot of work to do that when you have a game that doesn't have that supporting material. Whereas if you flip it and you go to, like, say, you know, any of the White Wolf stuff or Star Wars, obviously the obvious one, you know, Shadowrun or any of that, there's a lot of material that's already there that you can pick and choose and, and whatnot that you need that's supported so that you can concentrate on running the game for your people and not necessarily doing all the world building that has to go along with it.
1: So it sounds like you would actually recommend that people use a ready-made setting if they have a long campaign in mind.
2: Yeah, if they have one in mind, if it's something that they want to do, it's easiest on GMs unless you're a really good, experienced GM that can think on the fly and do all the storytelling on the fly. Most people aren't like that. You're just an honest GM, or you're just you know you casually doing with your friends. Pick a system or a setting that's already got a lot of material there, and work with that because that's going to be more fun for you. Because part of the fun of the long campaign, it's not just about the players having fun; it's also about the GM having fun. Mm -hmm. And if the GM's not having fun, that translates to the table. So you want to make sure the GM's having fun because you long campaign is exactly what it is: a long campaign.
0: Yeah, I would be okay with a sparse. Setting. If it had two things going for it first, it clearly had room to grow. For example, Don't Rest Your Head is extremely powerful. It's a great game, Mm -hmm. but the setting is specifically small. It's kind of this Neverwhere-like other world that has definite boundaries. The Mad City is a pretty small place. There's not that many places to go to. So it's not really suited to a campaign because the characters don't stay in it very long, and it's a pretty small setting.
3: I would say that uh, the thing that makes Don't Rest Your Head not suited to a long campaign isn't the smallness of the setting, because really, you could probably put whatever you want in there. The thing that wouldn't make Don't Rest Your Head a a good long campaign is that, like, you're going to go mad or die.
0: Well, yeah, that's some of it too, but, you know, Go Matter Die also works, you know, is also true of horror campaigns, and you can have a long horror campaign. It's a very small setting in the book. You could use the rules in another setting, certainly. The other thing that it needs is room for the GM to yes-and a lot of things in a sparse setting. You know, if you're okay fi- letting players fill in the gaps for you, I think that also works, Obviously, it's got to be a group that you trust. you got to be okay saying, yeah, sure, we'll do that. But I I certainly understand that if you specifically want to kick off a long campaign, you might as well start with a existing world and just, you're going to be adding to it anyway over the course of the campaign. You're never going to just, if you're just doing a tour of published places, listen, Ben, I know you write for (laughs) professional products, but you want the GM to start, inventing things on their own and changing
2: the Mm -hmm. world and adding to it. Yeah, exactly. That's part of the GM's responsibility. I mean, yes, you're going to use established material, but that material, if it's done well, will leave all those gaps for you to fill. You know, it will leave you the story hooks. It will leave you the, oh, let's try this, or, oh, I wonder what would happen if they encountered that. That's what you want. A long Campaign, to me, okay, so my definition is anything that has multiple episodes that are tied together, So it's not like a set length. It's not like a year or 12 sessions or anything like that. What it is, is any number of sessions or I call them modules, even though it's not necessarily the the, the modules is the best way to describe it because module to me is one session, all of those strung together. And even though they're encapsulated, they all have enough elements in it to create an entire arc that goes from start to finish. So you're telling a story with multiple chapters. That's a long campaign. So a long campaign could be four different modules from say D and D telling a story that modules may not be connected, but you're the one who creates the connection. So they have an an arc that goes from a to B. It could also be 52 episodes or chapters that go one a week for an entire year. That could also be a long campaign. Um, you know, or my example, four years, which wasn't intended to be that way, but that's what ended up happening. That's what a long campaign is, In it's in essence is anything really less than that. So, like, if you're doing one shot or you're doing it just like a, a two parter, that's a short session. That's let's step in, step out type type of situation. And those are also very rewarding because that's still a encapsulated story because it still has a beginning and an end. But I think the satisfaction right. level comes when you're looking at it from a longer point of view. So to, to explain it more, I, and most people probably understand the reference, but I'll explain it for those who don't really get what I'm trying to tell them. Think of a television season. Uh, think of a favorite drama that you're watching, say agents of shield, which is on right now or like burn notice, which went for seven years. Every episode was a self-contained story It had a beginning, middle, and end. Your characters went through one thing and came out the other. But there were elements within that particular episode that stretched or connected the dots between a lot of different ones. So that from season to season, you had an entire arc. And then hopefully, if the show was good, you had seasons that all connected together. So that from episode one, season one, to episode whatever, ending whatever... It was the entire tale of the character. And that, in essence, would be a long campaign.
3: So you're more talking about multi-arc other than long, because long is a really, really um, a vague word.
2: No, not really, because you you could—I've actually done this—you could take a module and make that a long campaign. You can break a module down into pieces that and explode each of the pieces to satisfy your players and make that entire module a long campaign because it's stretched over— a bunch of different sessions. You still have individual encapsulated stories each session, and they're still told by a broad arc. So you could actually take a module, one module, and a published module, and break it into component pieces, and use that as your as a long campaign.
3: Okay. In order to let me uh, understand this better, because I, I don't think I'm following, you've sort of said a, a definition of long campaign that seems to encompass absolutely everything. What is not <laughs> a long campaign? <laughs> like,
2: Okay, so a long campaign would be you sit down with your buddies.
1: What is is not a long campaign?
2: I want to know the things that would be not that.
1: Well, I would imagine like one shots and stuff. I mean,
3: so so we're talking about everything that's not like a one or two shot thing. So anything that would go for like three sessions, you would classify as a long campaign.
2: Yeah, I mean, to some GMs that would be a long campaign. To people like me. Three sessions is not a long campaign. But- I've okay. had a
1: few abortive campaigns yeah. that lasted less time than that, and they sure seemed long. Yeah. Okay.
3: All right. All right. All right. So, so now, now I'm more wrapping my mind around this. Now now we're not talking about the, the uh, five-year RP I did with a person where we went through, like, five generations of characters. You're right. talking about, the like, two of the current games that I'm running right now that I have planned out to go for at least three full arcs from first act, second act, third act in a three-act structure. So you'd say those are long campaigns.
2: Yeah, in a way they would be, because each act would be a separate contained
0: piece. Okay. Yeah, I I, I think there has to be enough time in the campaign to let players get invested in characters yeah. and explore
2: them in depth.
4: Yeah, that's really um, going to be
0: your I, definition. I don't plate. think there's a hard number on that.
2: Yeah, okay. there, there really isn't. That's, there's no exact definition to it. I think really what it comes down to is everyone's individual perception. But the bottom line is, did the character progress from one point to another in their particular personal journey? So are they different at the end than they were at the beginning? And was it because of events throughout the story that you were creating for them that they went through.
0: And I mean, I think this is one of the things that can happen kind of spontaneously, where maybe you you start off with like, all right, let's just give this game a shot here real quick. And then, hey, I want to go back to these characters. Yeah. Hey, let's turn this into something a little longer. Oh, hey, this is right. really working for us. Let's keep going.
2: And that's, that's what happened with me with the Star Wars campaign. That That's, it was, so, okay, so this is getting into the two types of campaigns, the plan and the spontaneous. So the plan is very obvious. It's a long story arc. It encompasses a lot of shorter chapters and episodes. But because it's planned, that means that the players and the entire group actually has to be committed to the campaign. Because you're going to have critical elements that are meaningful to the story at large within each of the chapters. So the group has to to commit to stick from the start to the finish.
1: Wouldn't this also affect character creation somewhat? I mean, yeah. I know I would probably make a different kind of character for a game that I knew was going to run for yep. a substantial amount of time than one I was going to just do for a con game or something. It does.
2: Yeah. It does, exactly. Because it does, I mean, it, you're taking into account that you know your character's going to grow. So you may not know the direction or the, actually, you actually may not even know the entire story. But you know... That you're in for the long haul, so you're gonna develop that character more towards seeing it develop rather than, you know, going for the Uber because you're you know you're only gonna play for a couple of nights.
0: Yeah. Like for me, I would want for a long campaign a fairly stable character with a lot of long term hooks, whereas right. for a, a very short term campaign or a one shot, yeah. I want somebody really broken who is going to crash and burn that night and we'll get the most
2: role playing out of him right then and there (laughs) and you'll find you you typically find that in planned campaigns like this the gm is more involved in the character creation for a couple of reasons one the gm needs to be involved because he's the one who's going to be pulling those bits and pieces of your story creation for your background it's his job to insert that into the longer into the longer arc he has to because that's how you thats how you begin to invest the character into the story. So you're going to find that those sessions where you, when you're doing a long campaign and you guys plan on doing it, plan on doing an entire session just character creation. Because you're going to have to set up your background. You're going to have to come up with some plot hooks. You're going to have to talk to your GM about and how I'm envisioning him. This is who this thief or this fighter is. This is kind of what I want to go That's very much essential as the character creation. I'll buy that. (laughs) Something else about the planned campaign is that these arcs are very tough to complete because the risk to the GM is very high. Players might not buy into the story, and if the players aren't buying into the story, the campaign's going to dwindle because there's no enjoyment in it whatsoever. The GM has to make sure that they build into each episode or each session enough of a story element to tell a story for the evening to involve the characters and to grow them in some small meaningful way that will make more sense later on down the road. If a character is being ignored or if the story is just so complex or they're say you you had a critical plot element, they completely missed because you know, players never do what the GM wants them to do and you're not prepared for it. And they miss something that's critical to the plot farther down the road and you don't fix for that or it just goes way off the rails. I mean, that's, very high risk that you're going to completely lose the players through the process. The strength of this planned one, though, is that it's in the modules and the episodes that you're doing. Because you can take published episodes and easily adapt them to the larger arc. Like uh, the Star Wars one I was running. One of the modules that we ended up running was Starfall farther on down the line, which was, uh, I think he had to capture a Victory, Star Destroyer, or something like that. And it was real easy to bring the, the players into that. And then I just rewrote the ending to match towards the next uh, module that I knew I was going to, which was Strike Force, Santa Pole. And that basically gave yeah. them information about the Verpine Asteroid. I can't believe I'm actually remembering this. Um, information to <laughs> the Verpine Asteroid they were going on to next, so that it altered the beginning of the next module. So knowing that you're planned, you can kind of space out what module is going where and how you can craft your intros and exits uh, to accommodate your larger arc for your players and then you know, still run with the the episode itself, which is going to be strong as it is. And you don't have to spend a lot of time building that. If you're a GM who likes to build all the time, then you're going to spend more time building each of those sessions, but you have to make sure that you have everyone involved at some point to keep their interest going. So that's, that's definitely a strength if you can pull it off. Sure. I mean, this is kind of what we're doing, Peter,
0: for the Shadowrun game that we've kicked off, where it's not each session is an
1: episode. Right, but each run probably is, right? Yeah, Yeah,
0: each run Mm -hmm. definitely is.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the strengths of Shadowrun as a setting is that it's got this kind of overarching structure kind of built into it. Right. You know, because you're going to do a run and that run's going to finish and probably end badly because it's Shadowrun. (laughs) And then you'll spend, you know, some time in between runs dealing with all the consequences from that. And that'll be like your next block of things. And then you'll, you know, lie low for a while, and the heat will come down, and you'll forget how horrible
2: it was, and you'll take another job, and the cycle starts all over again. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because I know that I did a, I did a long campaign for Shadowrun, and mm-hmm. it was almost entirely encased in the Renraku Arcology, which is a gigantic pyramid in Seattle. It was run-to-run, and we didn't have anything published for that. What I ended up doing was taking elements from various novels and incorporating them as parts of runs. Like... I read one like 2xS and I'm like, okay, that's an interesting plot point. Let's do that as a run. So that would be the run for that, for that night. And okay. then the next time we'd read like Raven and Wolf and I'm like, hey, that's a, that's pretty cool. Let's take that element and stick that, make that a run. So I would plan all of these runs and I had actual flowchart. Run this, if this, then move to this run. If not this, then move to this run. I actually had a flowchart of all the different runs, um, working into a, a pattern and then, um, all culminating down to a particular point.
0: Now, of course, you may get games where it's not planned, and it's just, like we said before, hey, let's stretch this out. Yes.
2: Okay, so spontaneous campaigns. This is actually what happened for me, and what happens in this situation is you start, you try a game. So, like, say you pick up uh, Star Wars. I think the new one out that's Edge of the Empire, that's actually one that I'm going to start subjecting my group to in the next few months as soon as I get my hands on it. So, let's try a game. So, we tried tattooing manhunt with my college group and they loved it. So we're like, okay, so the next time we got together, I, they wanted to do it again. So I picked, uh, I think one of the story arcs that was in the rule book and I just said, okay, we'll just do a small one and we'll do that. Well, they really liked it. So after a few weeks I began to realize they were really getting into this and they really wanted to keep using the same characters. And they were, they were starting to share their experiences and at dinner of all places. Um, in the college dorm, you've got a bunch of guys talking about Star Wars adventures over dinner, which I thought was hilarious. So they were sharing about all the different things that their characters were doing. And what ended up happening is I started thinking, going, you know what, maybe I'll just make this for the whole year because they really were interested in it. So in order to do that, let's try stringing a lot of things together and, you know, let's, let's see where they go with this. And so I thought, okay, so let's let's make the goal for this year. Um, let's end with uh, a new hope. So, we're going to end with them getting news that the Death Star exploded. So, we're going to work up to that point. And what I began to do is pull out modules as they came out and as West End was continually releasing material and backfilling in as I could all these different modules. And so, what they thought was we were sitting down and I'd pull out a module and they start playing it, not realizing that I was starting to drop hints and messages and even a character started to recur in there and then by the time they got to new hope they had to actually rescue that character from the character it turned out to be a double agent they had to go and rescue the the imperial spy and while they were you know running off with it um they got news that the rebel alliance had blown up the death star but um and they found out through various means that the person they had just done had just pulled out of the fire was actually responsible for that. Cause we kind of changed the camera a little bit. Um, sure. So they realized that, you know, what they did, who this person was, there was a big celebration. We had a big old, you know, party scene, um, you know, at the end and, you know, the, and at the end of the game, it was like, we all sat down, I think. And for like the next two hours talked about the entire year.
1: Wait, hang on, I want to go back to something. Sure. So your players were basically playing the Rebel Alliance's
2: intelligence network? No, they ended up going into that job the next year. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> what it started out was was a couple of smugglers and a kid and a fake force user um, who was really just kind of faking it. Um, I think that was actually a character class in the book, too. Um some kind of a charlatan or something? Yeah, something like that. I can't, I can't remember what the... I have the book here. I can probably look it up.
3: I Wasn't it like Disgraced Jedi or something? I think so. Fallen Jedi? Someone who tried to be a Jedi, couldn't cut it?
2: Yeah. Anyway, so the the idea was they were all smugglers, and because that's what appealed to them, the Han Solo vibe kind of thing. Um, and that was the easiest thing, actually, to get away with on a lot of worlds at the time. It was an so easy way to do adventures, because smuggling is, you know, you're running against the law, then you're working for the law, then you're running against the law, and um, you know, anyone can hire you to do anything, and, and that kind of stuff. And it's no wonder that half these guys end up playing shadow with me later, anyway. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but it turned into that whole, you know, how Han ended up getting sucked into the Alliance. Kind of happened how these guys got sucked into it too. So by the end of it, by rescuing the Imperial spy from the Imperials, there were some survivors from the assault that they had done. So they ended up getting when they came back to school the next year. Um, the first thing I gave them was I wrote up a, an Imperial alert status from Copnor saying, uh, be on the lookout for, and I gave the ship description and I gave two of the characters names and their descriptions and what they had done. And they were like, automatically, they fell right back into it. They're like, uh oh, you know, we're in such deep doo doo. And it was like four months later after we had ended. And they were like, they were primed for the next set of adventures that we were going to do because they remembered all of that. And of course, I had its whole summer actually to plot at that point. So I actually was in it for the long haul by then. But after the end of the final session for that first year, we sat around for about two hours and I just shared with them. I said, do you remember when you guys were on the Verpine asteroid and this guy said this and he gave you that? And they're like, yeah. And then it's like, well, that ended up going here. Don't you remember having to take it there? I'm like, You mean that was this, and this went there, and that was supposed to be that, and they started putting all these pieces together and starting throwing. What about this, and what about that, and some of this stuff they actually made connections I didn't even make, which made the characters bond even more, and they really got, they really felt a sense of satisfaction at the end because they had been with their character from start to finish. Well, one guy actually blew through two characters because he was pretty much, um, he was a horrible shot. You would think he was an Imperial <laughs> Stormtrooper in another life. Um, he was just horrible, but uh, he had his dice just did not like him at all. So he went through three different characters, but he actually played it as they are all three from they were all brothers from the same family. So he was actually able to kind of work that in. He was really good at that, and that became a thing. Every half at the end of every semester, we would have a small sit down, and they would share putting all these things together, and I would just listen because. What happens when, you, when you're the GM and you're listening to your players talk about how they're connecting things, it gives you ideas about what they pick up on. If you make it too subtle, they're not going to get it. And so some of the things I knew I had dropped in there, they never got. But then some of the things that I didn't anticipate, but they still picked up on it, somehow, we were, ended up taking that working into the story. So like somebody said, yeah, I remember we ran into this guy on Mantel and I thought maybe he was going to be this guy from my background, you know, who's looking for me because, you know, I had a, a run in with his dad one time and whatnot. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, that was like totally off the cuff. So I wrote it down. Okay, make sure you run into this guy. Make sure, write down this character. And he's going to run into this guy again. And this time he's going to say, hey, I know you. And then we did that like a few weeks later. And he was like, ah, I totally knew it. But, you know, so it's, right. you know, that that's all spontaneous though because you're listening. It means you have to listen to your players, but you have to trust your players, too, to get it. You can't force it onto them.
1: Well, and I think that brings up another good point for even shorter games is a lot of your best material is not going to come from inside your own head. No. And it's like every time that you're sitting there as a GM and think, that's better than what I had. Well, guess yes. what? It just became that.
2: Exactly. And I know for me, too, at the time that, we were running this. Timothy Zahn's books were coming out, the Era to the Empire series. Oh, yes. As we're running these games, we're all reading these books, which, I mean, were huge because all of a sudden Star Wars was like reignited. And we're all reading these books. And then West End was really starting to crank out source material. Like they're putting out softcover and hardcover books like crazy. And then the second. So edition. were
1: they licensing them off of the books that were coming out? Or is it just something that happened concurrently and it was a happy coincidence?
2: I think it was a happy coincidence because I remember hearing Zon say years ago when he was contracted to do the air books, they actually gave him a bunch of West End game source books, the, the older ones, to use so that he had a reference point. And for me, it wasn't that we were always consistently, we weren't always, I mean, we were poor college students. So for us, like getting the Imperial Sourcebook five years after the fact was new for us. So we were getting material and I I forbid my players after a while from buying any of this stuff because what they would end up doing is they would buy like Kraken's Field Guide and then I would get a knock on my door at like nine o'clock at night. And one of my players would be like, this is so cool. We have to use this in the next game. I'm like, uh, okay. So I'd have to f- see what this was, how it would work, how we could involve it. And then we get these crazy ideas based on these books. And I was like, guys, you have to stop buying these because you're ruining things for me. But what I ended up doing was taking a lot of the material as we were adding to our collective library, uh, reading it, and then backfilling in material from stuff we had already done. So I would take modules that I had, I had finished. And you know you don't toss them or anything like that. You reuse them in the sense that they're a resource library now. So like Tattoo Manhunt, I'm looking at it now, and I actually wrote quite a bit in here and underlined quite a bit about uh, the huts because one of the things we read about uh, more about the huts and their empire and which is society and all that stuff. And um, you know I went back through and I'm like, oh, we could use that. And then what I would do is kind of work that information that was from past stuff, from like a year or so ago, and say, hey, remember when you guys did this at this on Tatooine? Well, this is what happened here. And we would fill in that information with the new material that we had all gotten. So specifically, like the air books, like the Nogre we're a new race. So what we would do is while we're reading these, now obviously our time frame is not the same, but we would kind of read the books and anticipate what their history or backstory might be. And I would work it into my game. So, you know, there are smugglers, and they're at a, an outpost, and they run into a grave for an alien that, you know, is really quick, and they had no idea. And then one of them reads the book a couple of weeks later and went, oh, that's what that was. And then they would kind of work off of that. So, <laughs> sorry, I kind of got...
1: No, no, that it is a very good case for, like telling players stop buying stuff. Yes. <laughs> they're going to they're solve all the mysteries by reading the source material. Well,
2: And I didn't mind it so much. I mean, like the Rebel source book and a couple of the, the other books, I didn't mind it too much. It was more of the plot stuff that I kind of said, eh, you might want to wait till after we're done with this particular month or whatever before you do that. Yeah. Now this does
0: bring up a question I had for you, though. Sure. All right. How do you help players Remember things that happened early on in a campaign, because this is one of the things that has tripped me up in long campaigns as a player, especially at the end of a campaign. Yeah. Trying to keep up with all the stuff that happened very early on that wasn't like the first session, because the first session kind of stands out in your head, right? But four sessions in, you do something, and the GM, GMs have a tendency at the end of a campaign to try and bring things around full circle and say, Hey, remember this, remember this, remember this, and all the (laughs) stuff that's, that matters again. And you know, I kind of have to look at it and go, Nope,
2: I (laughs) don't remember that at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a couple of ways to to do that. One is just that, Hey, remember when you did this and this session and we did this and that, and just telling them straight out through the fourth wall, you can tell them that it's an information dump, not necessarily great for the experience. What I tend to do is, when we have a session and I know we're going to continue in a longer arc, anything that happens with a particular character or a particular event, I kind of make a note to myself off to the side saying whatever catchphrases I need to remember and then writing it down later on as a plot point, because what I'm going to end up doing is use that later. And typically I'll use it within the next couple of sessions to kind of keep it in the back of their mind and not necessarily in a way of this is the consequence of this. Okay. Great example. Jodo Cast is the Boba Fett knockoff from Tattooing Manhunt. If you're not familiar with the module, it's a bunch of bounty hunters on the front cover. They're all the ones from Empire Strikes Back, but they're all different names. So they're <laughs> not the ones from Empire Strikes Back. You just think right. they are. So what I did was about four sessions in, I was reading one of the uh, module scripts. And it was a bounty hunter, but it was not named. And I thought, you know what? I could really rattle their cage and make this Johto cast because he escaped from that particular module. And they were really mad that he escaped. So I'll write him in here and see if they pick up on it. You can't forget a Boba Fett call. Um, I mean, come on, you know. So I did that and I just kind of did it nonchalantly. And all of a sudden three of them were like, oh, no. And you could see all the pieces click in their minds. And none of them were pieces that I put in place. They just started putting things in context in their heads. And then two of them were like, we have to leave right now because it's going to be bad. And the other guy's like, why? I don't remember. What are you talking about? And they filled him in because the, the guy who didn't remember was one of the ones from the first session. And they're like, mm-hmm. don't you remember when we first started playing and we were on Tatooine and this guy and he almost killed the other guy and he set that trap. And they're like, and, and all of a sudden you could see the dawning happen on the, on my friend's face. Just like, oh, 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 oh we need to leave right now. We, we, <laughs> we need to leave right now. I mean, I love that reaction because you can see them, uh, all the pieces fall into place for it. And so just by dropping that name or just putting in a signature piece like that that's not too far away from where they were last, It begins that spawning because somebody at the table will remember and then they'll tell everybody else or not tell them.
3: This kind of goes off of a point I would give for this is let your players say what they're interested in. Yeah. Um, in the Y2112 game that I always talk about, well, recently they've, they've sort of resolved an issue with a mage's guild that they were at where they were a group of mages who wanted to practice uh, schools of magic that were restricted like enchantment and all this other stuff like that, and one of them was necromancy. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And one of the characters that they ran into was a necromancer, and this was supposed to be just a throwaway character. But the player characters hated her so much, she has now become a reoccurring character. (laughs) Because, like, instantly they're like, no, no, necromancer woman, we're not gonna let you do things. And I'm like, well, this is great. (laughs)
2: And a good GM can twist that to to their advantage. But see, when you do that and you drop characters like that, a benefit to that is if you have new players at the table who are just joining the campaign, the players who have been through it will fill them in very quickly (laughs) on the issue. And that kind of builds that sense of connectedness. Yeah, I think one of the key things about
0: running a long-term campaign like this is you've got to be flexible. Oh, yeah. you've, You've got to be able to work in new bad guys or good guys, because it's going to meander. Right. People aren't going to be interested in the same things night to night, you know,
1: right. somebody's going to come in with a, a well, different mood. would imagine mood. some of that is part of the appeal of it, right? A longer campaign yeah. like this has a wider palette to paint with than a, a more tightly focused one. It is for me. You can stretch out a game to include new things that
0: you never thought it would go to. I, I played a, a a mage campaign that was supposed to be a six-week prologue to a vampire game. Hmm. Well, the Vampire game started after a three-year mage campaign. Wow. It just stretched out because everybody got invested in it. You know, it's kind of a spontaneous, long right. campaign. Right. And it went places that nobody ever thought the
2: campaign was going to go. Yeah. And a good GM will seize on those elements that, you know, that seems their players are interested in. They'll seize on that.
0: Yeah. And the other thing
3: that I would say, and this is something I'm actually going to draw from, uh, non-tabletop role-playing, uh, mm-hmm. from my experiences doing online text-based role-playing back and forth. Uh, the mm-hmm. longest RP I've ever done, the five-year campaign, it started with an old warrior who was tired of fighting and this outcast, outcast woman and sort of their the romance and, and the two of them getting to know each other. It ended at a magical school where one of the original two main villains that we, we introduced was now a good guy. And another, like, really powerful sort of Mary Sue character that I had had become, like, the most terrifying villain they had ever faced. Because th- that's just how the story morphed. And it was a beautiful story that I will never be able to recreate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the way along campaigns. I mean, yeah. they, they're kind of a lightning in a bottle sometimes, nice. you know. And you don't think of it because it's such a long thing, but after – after it wraps up, you look back and go, I can never do that again because... Yeah. That first big campaign that I ever ran was wonderful that way. Yeah. You can run a one-shot a couple of different times with different people, and you'll get different things out of it, but it's all, it's a little bit the same, right? Whereas with a long campaign, because there's so much input, and yeah. so much of it is the people who are in it and the people who have come and gone from it, you're never going to get that again.
2: Right. So, so to circle back to what your question was about remembering things from early on in the campaign, obviously keeping a particular character or or nemesis or villain popping up in in various ways, but not so obvious every time that it's like a groaner, you know, after the fifth time, that's one way to do it. But, and there's other ways to, to kind of incorporate it. See with a longer campaign, you're not necessarily looking at making them remember the elements and the all the ins and outs of previous sessions what you want them to remember is to take away one or two important points from their session so and the best way to equate that is to look at long running television shows that share a a long arc like that when they're coming up on the season finale is there something that the character was constantly questioning or that was constantly brought up to them in various ways that would either force a question or keep something on the and not on the absolute forefront but just in the back of their mind like a little niggle you can't necessarily do like flashbacks with on the table what you can do at the table is use the characters background and their contacts and and whatnot to kind of bring that to the fore so like say as a very rough uh, example a character in your fantasy campaign his part of his background is uh, his driving force is to find out who killed his parents and you know you've worked in various elements throughout throughout the game to kind of address that. But it's like, say there was a particular key point in like the third session that you really wanted him to make sure he picked up, and he got it, but then it, it didn't have the same value to him that it will be later on. So all you have mm-hmm. to do is say like say like it was an artifact or something that he picked up and he carries with him because were, and you told him because it has this weird nostalgia feeling about his parents. So and he doesn't know why. So, you know, he carries it with him throughout the the thing. And then towards the end of the campaign, he gets a letter from his aunt. And she mentioned something about something that connects to this artifact. And then all of a sudden, based on other pieces that have gone on, he'll remember, oh, I have that artifact. And he looks at it. And then he realizes that there's more to it than what he thought. And he unlocks it. And then he finds out this piece that he's been carrying with him the whole time is part of the key to solving exactly what happened to his parents Um, actually I just realized um, the Monk television show uh, I don't know if you Uh guys have watched that or not Uh in the season finale of Monk he finds out that the evidence of his wife's killer was in this Christmas present that he had always kept unopened because she had given it to him the night she had died so he in his OCD-ness had kept it exactly wrapped because it was from her and he never opened it. And then he finds out at the end of the final episode, he finds out that the tape that has the incriminating evidence to put away his wife's murderer is in that box. And you realize when you're sitting there and and the audience sees this, you realize how many episodes did we see that stupid little Christmas box in that he had the entire time? And you're sitting here thinking as, as you see the realization dawn on the character's face, you as the audience are going, oh, oh, oh. Wait, wait, they, you start,
3: they actually set up that box? Because I thought they inv- invented it for that episode.
2: It was actually used as a side plot in the one Christmas episode, and it was mentioned a couple years later in another season. So by putting in little things like that from the character's background or using their contacts or somebody you know that they've interacted with before and just dropping a new way to look at something that they're carrying or something that they're thinking or something that their characters always believe and challenging them to kind of twist it. And then all of a sudden they'll actually do the work for you and remembering Oh, I did this and I had done that. And then we had done this and we went there and that's why we went there. And this is why, and then they'll just put it all together for you. So you want them to talk to each other and talk with themselves and just kind of think through all of that because then right. they'll start piecing all of that together and they're doing their work. They're doing your work for you. So you don't have to sit there and go, "Do you remember when?" Because <laughs> that's the when you get to that point, yeah, kind of lost them.
1: Something that I wanted to ask about, in specific reference to this, yeah, this was actually one good takeaway I took away from that long running D anD D campaign that I was dysfunctional in a lot of ways that I've talked about. But this was one good thing that I took away from that and used in the the game that I ran, appointing one player as the secretary or the scribe hmm. to take notes, aside from what the GM does and then reading those off at the beginning of the next session Mm -hmm. really helps keep the plot straight in everybody's head in both of those games. Have
2: you used that? Yeah, actually, especially if you have games where you're only meeting with your group once a month, that's 30 other days that they're going to forget. So having point point by point saying, okay, this is what we did last time, guys. This is who we faced off with. This is what our job was. This is what we did. This is where we journeyed. Plus, the thing is, is when you're hearing the players recount this too, You're hearing what's important to them. You're hearing what they're picking up and what's memorable to them. So then you can kind of craft your story to hit those elements that they're going to remember instead of trying to throw esoteric stuff that they're not going to pick up on at all, which is a good tool for you. Plus, it also helps you because when they're reading that stuff back off to you, you might actually have forgotten some of that stuff too. And. Yes, you have your GM notes and you have all your, your stuff, but they're telling it from a character's perspective. And sometimes that's invaluable in helping you continue with the arc. So what happened mm-hmm. for me is uh, after the first year, that first summer that I had when I knew that this was going to continue, I didn't know it was going to continue as long as it did, but this is what I did every summer, is I would sit down and plot what we were going to do. And what ended up happening the second year is we started adding players to the group. And we had a couple drop. You know, we had character deaths because it is Star Wars. It's not supposed to, but it happens. We started replacing characters, and we started having more people come in. And what ended up happening is you can't schedule everybody together, which we found out very early. So we were not going to be able to do it as often as we had wanted. So I floated the idea of doing smaller sidebar stuff, missions and whatnot, with smaller numbers of people. And then challenged myself to kind of work that all together. So two guys maybe were off on a Monday night. They were together. We had a couple hours. They would come over, and we would just do a, a self-contained mission with them. And I told them up front, and it's probably good to make sure you, your players understand this, because with a lot of games, character progression is important, giving out experience points, action points, you know, whatever the game's uh, system is. And if you have people who participate a lot in little missions that I'm explaining – you're going to have people level up very fast. So you need to be pretty blunt with them and saying, you're going to work towards various things, but I can't give you automatic points for everything that you're doing um, just because we, don't, we want to keep the, the group as a whole on the same level, relatively speaking. And if you're upfront with them about that and they understand that, they have no problems with that because it shows right. that you're being fair to your players because you've got guys who aren't going to be there all that often, but then you've got people who are like raring to go. Like I had one guy who wanted to play four times a week. I couldn't let him play four times a week. but Wow! Yeah, I don't think he actually went to class. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it was weird. Uh,
1: he majored in role-playing, yes, huh? Yes,
2: yes. But we had a couple of guys you who know, were very consistent and constantly together, and we were constantly doing side trips with them. And they were playing probably about twice a week with them. And what ended up happening is, you know, they were cool with not adding up points and all that stuff. So what I did was start recording start with extra information. So they would go on these missions and discover a tidbit here or something there. And it wasn't necessarily related to the overall arc, but it would be something that might be relevant to the larger module that we were playing on the weekend. They picked up a key data cube. They would find a particular piece that, you know, may seem junky, but then when you mention it later on in another game, Oh wait, I think we have that in the cargo hold. And then, you know, they'll go over and sometimes they'll tell the story about how they got it. What ended up happening was they would actually sit down and share with the rest of the group. Oh, this is what we did. We we went out to Iridadu last night and we totally rocked this this smuggling mission or we went to Narshada and um let's just say we're never allowed to go back. <laughs> you know, things like that. <laughs> there would be real good sports about it and they would share the information and talk about their stories and all that. But what I had to do is start keeping track of it and then I ended up making arcs for each player that I knew were gonna stick around. You
1: know what I really like about this, too? If you're playing a game and you're leveling up a lot and stuff, a lot of the time you'll wind up with a bunch of character abilities that you're never going to use, right? or you're almost never going to use, right? but information like this, you're
2: going to use it and you're going to feel so cool when you get to. And what I tended to do, too, is in the smaller uh, sessions that we would have, I would typically run those off the cuff. So I would have a couple of notes about what I wanted to do, um, maybe a couple of different things about the mission. And what I would do then is kind of run it on the fly, working it as we go. And I would actually force them to use skills that they weren't necessarily strong in just because I wanted them to experience being sometimes being not computer savvy and trying to put the code in and failing miserably and having (laughs) the entire base go off alert. Um, Right. You know, or they really needed a Jedi and they didn't have one and they really had to fake it somehow. I was constantly challenging them. And I did this as a as a purpose point for myself. I was trying to find different ways to involve the different skills. So like, you know, you see the skill list, and you're like, how do we get them to roll that skill group? What situation can I put them in that will put them outside of a blaster comfort zone? You know, the smuggler is a really good shot. So I tried to really push him into positions where he had to talk his way out of things. And I'm the GM that doesn't let you roll for negotiation. I make you negotiate. So he would have to Ugh. give me his negotiation. I,
3: I like you and I hate you at the same time because, <laughs> like, I like talking and I like doing it, but I also put the skills in it so that, yeah. like, I can wait, roll wait. and make it happen.
2: I mean, I would make them roll. I mean, they would roll, and I would keep that in mind. Like, oh, okay,
3: then I'm fine. Were, I'm fine. All right, we're good.
2: <laughs> right. So, like, so, like, okay, so a conversation might be, like, if he's dealing with an inspections or a customs officer, I'd make him roll the negotiation skill. And cause he's going to negotiate and I'm like, okay, so there's your results and now will talk to me. And I would know what that actually meant, whether it was a high success or low success. And then I would play the counterpart accordingly. So if it was really high success, I might have a really low intelligence customs official because he really succeeded at that role. So I'm going to play it as, you know, uh, a guy from the sticks, you know, he's going to totally pull one over on him. But if, you know, it was a really marginal role, I might force him to sweat it out a little bit with the guy but ended up letting him take it in the end. So, you know, it was just, you know, the role still counted, but what the role dictated to me was how my response was going to be. So another problem that I know that long campaigns have is bookkeeping. And I know the problem that I had back then was I went to school before the internet. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't have uh, wikis and I didn't have Facebook pages and, and that kind of stuff. We'd have to keep it all by hand and use the Base spreadsheet or a graph paper, actually, um, to keep track of things. But today, there's so much more available tools that you can use for larger, uh, longer campaigns. I know I'm going to be trying out a uh, BattleTech RPG online with a f- bunch of friends uh, using Skype, and we're supposedly using a Facebook page as our our repository. You're playing BattleTech? Yeah, who well, I write for BattleTech, so yeah, I'm just. Sorry, somehow it seems weird that
0: you'd want to play the stuff oh. that you write for.
2: Yeah. Well, okay, so I'll clarify. I haven't actually, I didn't write anything for the RPG, so I have no problems playing the RPG, and <laughs> I actually like ah. playing RPGs more than I play tabletop. So there's a lot more resources for bookkeeping for players, and there's a lot of resources for groups to play that aren't necessarily at the physical table, but at the virtual table, which, you know, I didn't have that, you know, so that that's a huge boon right there. I mean, you've got a lot of things. But the other thing, the other flip side to that is there's so much information available that you have to be very careful as a GM that you're using things and not telling your players, we're going to use this module so they're not going out to look at it or yeah. read the synopsis of it. And then just by design, as a GM, you're going to want to tweak stuff anyway because you're going to want to change this to that. And you're going to want to change this to work for your park and you're going to change this baddie to this guy um, so that there's some twists and whatnot into it. I think one of the best things I actually tried, we were actually going to try doing this. and I haven't done it yet. One of the early D&D models is uh, Tomb of Horrors. The oh, most, yes. The impossible. The fear yes, the, the, of, oh, I the love of annihilation
1: horse. in the statue's mouth and yes. traps and monsters and all kinds of horrible synergistic scenarios. and <laughs> All the unbreakable traps.
2: So what I wanted to do, and I would like to actually try doing this, is take the essence of those traps and make that as a war game scenario, making players in battle actually work through a cavern system that has <laughs> this. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it would actually work, but it was a thought that uh, a couple of guys and I were actually tossing around. You're just adapting the old stuff for a new purpose. Um, yeah. Because of the proliferation of electronic media, you can get a Star Wars module and use it for Pathfinder. You can find out-of-print stuff, Online and adapt it for your uh, completely different game, and your players will be completely clueless. They wouldn't know that you're using uh, Strikeforce Santa pull as the basis for your Pathfinder game. I mean, they, they would not know that at all.
0: Yep, I was on a Reddit thread today that was talking about that. You know, talking right. about products that were used f- that you found for one game that were really useful for other games and other campaigns. So yes. I mean, for me, it was the Sharn City of Towers book, which is a D&D 3.5 splat book for Eberron. It's the best resource I have ever found for urban campaigns, because there's so much cool stuff.
2: Yeah, and I used, um do you remember the Forgotten Realms? The, I think it was Underdark. Was it Underdark? That was the Endless Dungeon? I know of it. I never did.
0: M- the only campaign I ever played in the Forgotten Realms was the worst campaign I've ever played
2: in. Okay. I didn't pay it much so, attention. So I think it was a box set. It was the Endless Dungeon. There's a lot of different stuff in there for GMs to use as a basis for their material as well as create their own stuff. I didn't use it for d and I actually used it for Shadowrun. And actually, huh. I used it for the Arcology, the Renraku Arcology campaign that we ran. Um, uh-huh. That's actually where I adapted it for. The source material that's there and it's already done for you, all you have to do is plug in the right bits for the universe you're in and, you know, voila, you're, you're set.
1: Yeah, and I think that is something that works well with Star Wars in particular is there's a lot of, like, equivalency yes. to certain fantasy tropes in Star Wars. I mean, it's... Oh, yeah. it's Definitely not a full-on fantasy setting in a lot of ways, but... Right. It's you've, science fantasy. It's yeah, close you've enough. got you've got melee weapons and the lightsabers. You've got mm-hmm. magic and force use. You know, there's there's enough there where the converting is probably not all that difficult, I would imagine. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, to get back to the,
0: the bookkeeping thing. Yes. One of the problems I have run into with a long campaign is an overabundance of bookkeeping. Oh, yes. It, it seems counterintuitive to a lot of people, especially to a lot of GMs who complain about players who don't write things down and don't remember things. <laughs> but with, with the people that I game with, we have exceptionally detailed wikis instead of campaigns that actually get played. Um, uh, for the birthright campaign that I'm, I'm in, which is a campaign going on eight years now, we have a spreadsheet that is so large Google Drive can't handle it. Wow. I mean, it's that an is, enormous spreadsheet. I knew spreadsheet. it was a big spreadsheet, but you never told me it was that big. It, oh, you know what? Well, it's because it's, it's not a size issue, now that I think about it. it's um, Some of the mathematical functions required to handle the stuff going on in that game, Google Drive spreadsheet doesn't support.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: We're doing some really complicated stuff in this game. Wow.
1: So what you're telling me is that in that world, you are the 1%, and you're having to play your own bookkeepers. (laughs)
0: Yes, in fact, we have, as a resource in-game, an army of bookkeepers. (laughs) The third bookkeeper core. (laughs) So yeah, the bookkeeping thing is an issue that I have seen come up. I think it just, it kind of requires a little bit of willpower, as much as anything else. It's, I think, worse for the GM who wants to write down all their world-building information and dump it on the players instead of focusing on the next session, which is why I have not created a wiki for the Shadowrun game that we have. I don't want to have that temptation
2: yet. I want to get the campaign really going before we start putting that out there. One of the things, too, that players will need to keep in mind if they really want to record everything and... You know, make sure they're not missing anything, there's an inherent problem with that. Players talk, uh, they'll discuss, and they'll share. And what ends up happening is they'll do their own, some of them will do their own research. And what they will end up happening is they'll start putting things together that may not go in the direction that you're going. Say you're using a corporation and you actually fundamentally shifted their direction, but the players don't know mm-hmm. do this. And so they're going by what's the source material. And then some guy says, oh, I read this in this book and maybe that's what they're doing. And then they start coming up with an entire plot string of or ideas of what they want to do, where they want to go, all these different things. And it's completely 180 degrees the direction you want to go. Yeah, And it's because they'll sit and spend too much time delving into all that material that they really don't need to do. It's more of a GM, knowing who your players are, knowing what their personalities are like, and just saying, hey, you got five minutes to write down anything important. And then sometimes it's like, you know what, guys? Just go with the story. Don't worry about the setting. I'll, I'll give you the information as you need it. You know, you just have to ask.
3: Well, see, I see the problem there being much more about setting than an a ongoing game. If you're changing things about the setting, then you might need to let the players know. Unless it is not something that's well known, like if you're changing the setting and you have a, uh, like, e- you're playing Star Wars, mm-hmm. and you have this one rogue group of X-Wing fighters that are actually, like, a cult of some weird thing, and uh, they're doing something else that's totally not uh, involved uh, in the story, but for the most part, X-Wing uh, fighter pilots don't act like that, then... I think it'd be something where, where you have to look at them and go, no, no, you know that all X-Wing fighter pilots in my world are actually cultists rather than letting them go on and, and create a huge long, uh, thing. Cause yeah. I'm, I'm perfectly fine if like, if, if I have a trick and like this guy isn't exactly what he sees and my mm-hmm. players are going in there, they're making a whole bunch of really huge plans. So long as it don't, doesn't go on too long and like right. distract too much from it. I'm perfectly fine with letting that roll and letting them do it and then when it blows up in their face i go you know guys if, if you would like spent some time investigating you right. could have figured but that out th- yeah yeah
2: major shifts like that yeah you do want to m- inform your players ahead of time saying you know during the creation process
3: well unless this is a fundamental yeah. difference unless, unless it's like talking... a trick or or a, 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 a it's yeah. yeah uh something that's hidden like you know but what or- i'm
2: I'll give you an example. One of the things that in the Shadowrun game, the Raku, one of the company politics was uh, when one way towards, I think the Tier Nation, which was next door. There was just a small a small change that I made in it because I wanted to fit a particular element within the, the story itself. And it wasn't like it was a major game universe changing thing. It was basically in one of the source books that talked about their, this particular relationship is like half a paragraph. And, you know, it's not something I need to mention to the players, but what happened was one of the players was really reading in depth about Renraku and caught this and said, oh, they feel like this towards us, so it can't be this. Ha- we have to actually be looking for this. The so we'll let's start plans doing that. I actually wasn't there for the chat session that they had when they were sitting around eating pizza and watching MST3K. Um, they were talking about the game, and the guy brought this up. And all of a sudden, they came up with an entire structure of what their goals were, what they were going to do, what they were going to do next. This is how we're going to attack it. This is what we're going to do. We're going to approach this person. We're going to do it. They had an entire plan all laid out. And when we got to the session, they shared that. And I was it was completely in the other direction of where I really needed them to go to bring this story to a, a satisfying conclusion. It would have wrecked the entire end of what I was <laughs> building to and gone to a completely different thing. And I really didn't feel like working with that. So I actually stopped them and I said, First of all, what prompted this entire, because this was unlike them. I said, what prompted you to do all of this? And they were like, we read this, that, about this and that. And I'm like, well, okay, so your first problem is is that you read something in that book and it was either out of, char- it was out of character information or something that necessarily wouldn't have been known to the characters or something like that. That was probably the f- real first instance of um, in-game knowledge, out-game knowledge that we had to deal with. And once they realized they had practically wasted an entire evening coming up with all of this, they very amiably scrapped it. So it's something small fundamentally like that. If you're not prepared for it, it can completely derail everything you're doing.
0: Oh, yeah. There's something I did want to talk about briefly, and that's the different sort of characters that you can have in long campaigns versus shorter Uh campaigns. We touched on it a little bit towards the start when I was saying, you know, hey, I want to have these really dramatic characters that crash and burn or really fast in a a short game because, you know, I want them to have that emotional punch. I did want to bring up a listener comment. One of the things that I've started trying to do is put kind of a preview of the episode out and get points from listeners in our Google Plus community. And Scott, who's a longtime listener of ours, uh, said that he... This is a, a point of his that I'm going to read off here... I love stories that seem to have a simple moral decision to make, but as the story progresses, you find out that it is much more subtle than you thought, or that you've been going down the wrong path all along. And Looking at morality in games, long campaigns allow for slow-burning development of moral issues and quandaries, especially those complex ones. I'm paraphrasing him a little bit here, but that's mostly what he's saying. Um, and to get back to some of what we were talking about with evil characters uh, an episode or two ago, long games allow for more organic redemption and corruption arcs with gradual changes instead of some big, dramatic, and kind of hollow-seeming change that you can get in really short, tight time frames. I, I think there's a lot of validity to Scott's points here, because... That's one of the things I really liked about the long campaigns I've been in is the characters who ended up resolving character arcs or having time to deal with them instead of trying to cram in these stories in a really short amount of time. Right.
1: Well, and I mean, for a short game, you want... I'm going to use two examples from the Marvel Universe because it was the first thing that popped into my head. You want Thor, right? You want somebody who swings hard, who has some stuff that's going to, you know, when it pops up, it's going to come up in a big way and affect the whole world, because that's on an epic scale. Mm-hmm. But for a longer running game, you want Spider-Man or Daredevil, where they're going to go through all of this growth and changes people and have all of these kind of complicated relationships and stuff like that that are going to keep coming back to the fore, and not every decision that somebody who's a little less awe-inspiring is going to be as easy to make just kind of because they don't have access to as many resources. A common thread that comes up when talking about superheroes is that Superman doesn't have to work very hard to do the right thing. He's invincible. (laughs) So it's easier to, to put these kind of moral struggles and subtle moral decisions on somebody who doesn't have that kind of resources. If you're down at the level of somebody who can't save everybody that the big bad is threatening, Well, then you've got a much more interesting, if painful, decision than somebody who is super fast, super strong, and indestructible and can literally be everywhere at once in the whole city, save everybody, and then dust his hands off and, you know, punch the villain into space. Well,
3: see, the one thing that I—I'm not 100% certain I agree with you. Admittedly, I know very little about comics, but I actually think those are the sort of stories that they— did a lot of times give Superman because they couldn't challenge him physically. So they did try to challenge him emotionally and with like, you can't be everywhere at once. Uh, And admittedly, some uh, movies depends on who the writer is. I I I mean,
1: Superman can be any, you know, his super speed, for instance, is anywhere from a couple hundred miles an hour to, I can literally turn the earth back yeah, in reverse I know, I know. time, like in that one movie.
3: Like I was saying, <laughs> in that one movie, they totally ruined it by saying, we're giving you this power, and yeah, but we're not talking <laughs> about that. <laughs> um, uh, but, like, I- I'm talking about, like, what do you challenge the man who bullets literally bounce off his skin? Well, you obviously challenge him with something that isn't bullets. Right. Uh, so sort of getting into like the Dresden trials game that I'm running, like I've got this one guy who's really, really tough. Uh, what am I going to throw up against him if I really were to challenge him? A mental conflict, a social conflict. Yeah. You're really great. in all the other scenes where you get to use those and you get to be the tank yeah. and absorb everything.
1: But I, well, and this goes yeah. back to what Ben was saying earlier about when he was doing those sidebar games, he kind of forced people to operate outside of their comfort zone.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of it it really just comes down to the base appeal, I think, that players have for long campaigns and the characters in them is that people really like to be the little guy. They want to be the guy down and on on his luck because the opportunity is in front of them to take that particular character and watch him grow through all the situations you know are going to be coming and seeing him at the end, what he looks like at the end. Because that, I think, really fits to how we feel. We're not Thor. You know, we're not the Titan. And I think the characters that appeal to people who really like the long game is that base concept. And what's even more interesting is when you're playing, you know, those down and out characters or those characters that have that one fatal flaw or that one hidden secret, there's something to be said about working through Peter Parker's angst and high school college issues and going crime finding at night and then he's you know catching a bank robber and then it's side street over there's an avengers beat down on whatever and they ask you for help or you know you help them out at a key critical point and they give you a nod or a thanks or whatever and that that rush of i just helped thor or i just you know saved black widow from getting crushed by doc ock or whatever that little boost is really what makes that that minor character really stand out. Because, you know, think about the rush in real life. So like, okay, I'm in Washington, D.C. So if I'm walking down the street and a motorcade comes by and, you know, it's President Obama, you know, there's a certain rush that like, wow, that was the president that just drove by me. And, you know, think about whichever you want about his politics, whatever. The fact that there's somebody that, you know, that famous or that on the national stage or on the world stage that just passed you by, or especially if they like, said hello to you or smiled at you or said, you know, good job or anything like that. That rush really kind of boosts you. And if you're in a, if you're a character and you get into a, a Sabat game with Lando Calrissian and you beat him and he tells you, Hey, good job. Gives you a nod or whatever. And you kind of play that to the character. The character remembers that. And it's those little things that like, I was just, I'm a little somebody and somebody big noticed me that little boost that makes that character more valuable to them because it really means they're really playing it to themselves so like i was saying is you know the character that people really latch onto in these long games is that character who has that life struggle that story is the shell that contains that player's growth from start to finish and you know it's a successful campaign not when it's done and they're all like oh yeah it's a cool story but when they when they stop and they look at their character and say this is where he ended And this is where he started, and wow, that was an awesome journey.
1: You know what else you can do, kind of on the other end of the same spectrum but still cool with a character like that, is instead of, um, actually probably in addition to, because you're going to want some of both as the campaign goes on. Are you guys familiar with the Ray Bulls song, Thank You? Yes. It's a Christian song from... Okay, so for, no. for anybody who's not familiar with it, it's basically the story of like this guy who's a spectator in heaven, and he's, he's talking to his friend. They've both died recently, it's kind of implied. And all these people come up and keep like thanking his friend for all this little stuff that he did throughout his life. Yeah, It very much goes back to Matthew 25, 34 to 40. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And it's like, there's all of this stuff that this character did... None of it seemed all that significant at the time, Mm
4: -hmm.
1: but the legacy that this person left behind was so incredible once they got to the end because of all this little consistent stuff. And that would be a a really kind of a fun thing to play with, too. I would think in, like, a gaming context, it's like you do these little things that help people out, and then at the end you're, like, isolated and you're in a jam, and these people start coming out of the woodwork. It's like... Hey, you helped me back when, or you helped my father or my mother or my friend back when, so now I'm here for you. Well,
3: exactly. I think we mentioned this when we were talking about morals and putting good things in games and reporting good behavior. Uh, this is a point-of-story uh, process. This is the booster rocket. I, I think I've, I talked about this in uh, Science of Storytelling. Just before the break into Act 3, uh, when the heroes are at their lowest point, they've gotten kicked in the teeth... And they're reflecting and they're putting their teeth back in their mouth and they're sort of trying to talk again and, you know, sort of getting their bearings and just mentioning how much it sucks to get kicked in the teeth. Uh, and they're thinking that they're just about to give up. That's when something comes in that gives them hope. And that would be usually the B story paying off. Well, that would okay. be what you're talking about right now, Peter. It's all the little factions that they've met along the way. Good or bad, sort of come back, and maybe they help them for a price if they were, uh, if they sort of, you know, betrayed them, or maybe they have to go and mend a fence with someone that they hurt. But there's definitely some people there who they helped that are like, hey, yeah, you saved my farm. I've called in a favor. And uh, here's the people I got. Are you guys familiar with Summer Wars? Yes, I am.
1: Summer Wars? Summer Wars.
3: It's an animated movie. It's basically the best part of the Digimon movie expanded into an entire movie that has nothing to do with Digimon. And it's really, really amazing in how they do the story. Uh It looks initially like it's going to be a riot, liar reveal storyline, and they get rid of that in the very first act. And it's just so great from there on out, and I loved everything of it. It's one of my favorite movies out there. They're fighting against an AI that is trying to take over the world, basically. And And do they
1: they wind up drawing in a bunch of people from disparate places towards the end then? Yeah,
3: the thing is stealing accounts from everyone, so they get the idea to bet him for accounts. And uh, in the end, uh, if you don't want to hear Summer War spoilers, please skip uh, this point, but basically... Well, see,
0: now you're making me want to go watch the movie, so... Yeah,
4: I,
3: I want you <laughs> yeah. to go watch the movie. I want you to go watch the movie. It's, it's the most awesome movie ever, but basically...
1: Well, Brandon, why don't you not spoil it? I think you've got enough in there to make your point, and since we're running long, let's keep going. Okay. Yeah. All so, right.
2: one thing I want to clarify really quick is that if a player is coming to a long game, there's nothing wrong with playing a character that is one-dimensional or uber or, you know, all-combat or all this or all that... There's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to come to the table and make a complex character, but you're gonna find if you are a player who does do that, you're gonna get bored relatively quick. Um, I had a player in the Star Wars campaign. He all he wanted to do was play a droid, and he basically built him up himself as a combat droid. You get to that point where, as a GM, you gotta take care of it, but you also gotta you know kind of challenge him to do other things. And what ended up happening is he got really bored after a while because all it was was okay I shoot it or okay I do this uh, break the security code or you know okay I do that you know I pilot the ship and that's all he was doing and he realized he wasn't having any fun and he was watching the rest of the group enjoy themselves immensely because they're building complex characters and really getting into the story and all that stuff and he really wanted to but he just really couldn't do it and he asked me um, I'm really getting tired of this character because you know he's just this is all he does he's just a brute you know there's nothing to him And I gave him an option. I said, well, we could do one of two things. We can retire him. Just let me take care of it. Or you can try doing something with him that would give him somewhat of an arc that, you know, something we could work off of. And we really kind of hashed around a bunch of different ideas. None of them really worked. So he opted to just retire the character, which I ended up Mm -hmm. disappearing him and then showing up a couple years later as a bad guy. (laughs) Which really kind of threw everybody off, especially those because he wasn't in the group at at that time and the rest of them remembered that and completely freaked out when he showed up. So what we, I encourage him to do is to sit down and we really made a better character for him and kind of incorporated a little bit of history and, you know, his parents were dead. So what do you want to do? I want to find out who killed him. Okay, great. Let's, that's the perfect trope. Let's just use that. You know, you don't have to go any deeper than that. You don't have to go into angst and, you know, high school is a drag and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, You know, I would challenge players that going into a long game, if you're just looking for a character to, uh, you know, just handle the brute stuff and, you know, be the go-to, you know, combat guy and all you do is fight, 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 that's great. There would be a place for you at the table, but the GM is going to have to keep in the back of his mind, I'm going to probably need to replace that character with one that's a little bit more depth uh, because you know he's going to get bored really quick.
1: That's a good point.
2: Because, yep. you know, like I said, the appeal to the long game is the character development that goes from one point to another.
0: Yeah, and that about sums it up for me, actually, because that, yeah. that's what drives me for a long campaign. Is not necessarily the... it's really not necessarily the plot. It's the change that the characters go through. Right.
2: I think a lot of players are in it. For that reason, and I think the GMs are in it because they get to tell a really cool story that's interlinked in so many different ways. Yeah, um,
0: and they get to see the progression
2: of their players.
0: I, I think it is for some GMs. For me, honestly, mm-hmm. and maybe it's just because I'm not a very good writer. I don't care as much about the plot in my own game. For the Shadowrun game I'm running. I'm really just kind of want to resolve these character storylines. Right. I don't have a overarching plot that I have already created because the character stuff's much more
2: fun. Yeah, and you know what? That is a perfectly great way to run the game. Yeah, and, yeah. and Grant, I
3: have to argue with you here. You do care about the plot. You just <laughs> aren't calling the thing that is the plot, the plot. You're calling it okay. character stuff.
0: <laughs> You're right. That's probably true. Uh, let me put it this way.
1: Okay. But, but I'm going to defend Grant here because I'm in that game and it was, this game has been started because we all had these really awesome characters that we loved and the game didn't go the way that we were hoping it would. Yes. Let me
0: put it this way. I am taking the plot directly from character desires. I am not coming into this game with a story I want to tell. Right. Right. Okay, so that's, that's maybe where the difference is for me, but you're right, Brennan. it is a plot. It's just not one that I have and I'm trying to squeeze characters into.
2: Right. Just like in any good movie, sometimes there are movies that the plot is absolutely just mediocre, but it's the character that drives it. Sure. And, that, and that's, that's what you want. And everybody's different. Everybody comes to the table with a different expectation, and as long as all those expectations are being met by a GM who's having fun and knowing what he's doing, it's going to be a great campaign. And I find it highly ironic that we went long on the long campaign story. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But that's actually a good point to wrap it
0: up. Yeah. I think so, too. Ben, thanks for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, of course. I will put a link to Games Most Wanted in the show notes. Cool. Thank you. Yep. And uh, there will also be a link in the show notes to our fundraiser for the Bodana Group. Again, if you aren't familiar with the Bodana group, go listen to episode 25 and check out our fundraiser page for them. It's a, a non-profit that uses tabletop role-playing games to provide drama therapy, essentially, for uh, children who have been impacted by sexual trauma. And it's a really awesome group that's trying to do a lot of good.
2: So second that. It is an awesome cause. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they're amazing. So, from all of us here at Saving the Game, I want to wish you guys a A good one, and uh, we will talk to you next time. Good night, everybody. Later. Peace out. This has been a production of Saving the Game, copyright 2013. This podcast may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, provided that credit is given to savingthegamepodcast.org. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. For past episodes, podcast news from our hosts, or to connect with us, visit our website at
4: savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.